Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Jeremy Scott Fitness Podcast Radio Show. Coming to you on this Friday, September the 17th, 2021. Hopefully it finds you staying safe and staying sweaty all at the same time. On today's episode, we have my man, Michael Bradley, from the Bradley Wealth Management crew in the house but before i jump in you guys already know this podcast is brought to you by my homies at athletic greens it is the one thing i take every single day if you guys struggle to eat enough vegetables and let's be real all of us do this would be the thing i would throw into your life and right now if you guys want to get hooked up we will give you a year supply of free vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first order and if you've heard me talk about this 8,000 times or maybe this is the first time you've heard me rap about it and you want to try a free sample hit us up I don't care if it's on Instagram YouTube the contact page in the site Facebook wherever you guys follow us at send us all your info I'll have Monica send you a pack right to your house I don't care what state country providence you live in we will get it to you 100% for free and if you want to check it out right now the site athleticgreens.com slash Jeremy Scott for all of the free stuff I'll link all the other sponsors to the podcast in the show notes for you guys um, the only other thing we got going on our 28-day intermittent fasting for fat loss program is kicking off here, I believe, October the 5th. Uh, the site is jeremyscottfitness.com slash intermittent-fasting. I'll give you guys a podcast discount code if you want to get down with that. I'll share more details probably later this weekend in an episode, but if you're interested, I'll be throwing it on the newsletter on Monday so you guys will see that. It's a mouthful. Now... Uh, my man Michael Bradley is in the house, and real quick, uh, the site BradleyWealth.com, which I'll put in the show notes as well. He founded this back in 2002. Uh, they've grown this kind of high-touch boutique advisory firm serving clients through the right way to do financial planning, tailored investment strategies, and like a very personal touch. So it's not just this big box set it and forget it they actually want you to do awesome because that is how they do awesome so i know i said that but what the hell does that even mean it's a big question yeah uh first of all thank you for having me oh it's great to be here um i've been watching you listening to you for the last couple years and uh following your podcast and i gotta say my man uh what you've been able to do here over 13 years uh listening to your uh, overnight success podcast um uh, hats off to you. Uh, it's not easy grinding it out and building a business like you have. And I know we talked a little bit about the the uh, similarities between our businesses and how we work with people. But uh, with that, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I started Bradley Wealth uh, back in 2002, Jeremy, as you said. And, you know, I came off a 15-year corporate career. Uh, I had uh, an opportunity to take some chips off the table and exit and I took some time off and uh, you know just through a lot of discovery and introspection I ultimately kept coming back to this space and you know I had a couple uh, stops along the way at various firms and I just really never felt uh, a deep true connection a relationship with an advisor or someone that I really felt cared about my interest my values what was important to me really a goal being a goal-driven person having goals uh in front of me constantly and uh, so what I ultimately decided was uh, I was going to make a living out of this and I uh, went to work started studying for my series seven exam which by the way is probably one of the toughest things I've ever did in my life other than climb Mount Rainier Uh, I've had friends do it they say it's not uh, not ideal not fun 
No, and you know when you get into the uh, fee only business, uh, you have to let that seven go. Which, for anybody that's on our side of the business, they'll tell you that's probably the toughest decision about being a, a fiduciary RIA. But Bradley Wealth was born, uh, had a long held passion to serve people and help people, and and really just uh, try to identify. Uh, their values and goals and th and that methodology is is what uh, we pioneered and it's it stayed front and center for the entire uh, history of my practice and uh, you know our process our proven process as we call it Jeremy is um, all about the client relationship uh, I'm very proud of the firm we've created today I've got an incredible group of, of stakeholders uh, teammates uh, I'm in the trenches with them every day but you know, our firm, and I use the, the term boutique, and if you've ever been, I'm sure you and Heather have your favorite restaurants, your favorite hotels, your, your favorite places to stay and travel. You know, I built Bradley Wealth with that same thinking, whether it's Four Seasons, Ritz, uh, whatever restaurant you're going to, you know, you go back for the same reasons. But the ultimate goal was to create a, a very elegant, uh, seamless, transparent, uh, highly personalized, high-touch firm that really served as the go-to uh, quarterback, financial coordinator, accountability partner for a select few. Uh, we're not trying to be all things to all people. And that's probably what makes you guys different than some of the bigger places where, like how many people work on your team? Uh, today we have six. And so if you're looking like most people are familiar with like Jones and Schwab and Merrill, like thousands of people all across America, it's different. And you might know your advisor because he's probably local or hopefully he's in your area, but you guys are different where you probably, like similar to us, like and there's not a knock against any of those places. Like Jones is great, Schwab is great, Merrill's great, Lifetime Fitness is great, Mountainside's great, but they can't know everybody. And not that you have to necessarily, but we know everybody who comes here. And I'm assuming you guys know everybody that you work with. And not just like their first name, like you know what they do which I think is rare probably in the, in the financial world for a lot of places. Most definitely. I would say from the time, you know, we get that initial phone call, someone calls our office, uh, you know, we have a brief uh, discussion about our, our process and approach, but it's really a listening, get to know you conversation. It starts with discovery, but we, we do absolutely take the time to know everything there is about our clients. Uh, their families, their hobbies, their passions, uh, their likes, their dislikes. Um, and you can imagine, you know, everyone's unique. We're all human. We have things that um, uh, we aspire to be and things we want to accomplish in life. But uh, that's why I'm so passionate about planning, uh, because our, our, our process is built on a planning focus, a planning module, and, and really digging deep with those clients around their needs, wants, wishes, uh, fears, hopes, dreams, desires. You know, and I've always said the only way you can truly help somebody is if you get to know them and understand what are their values, what drives them, what keeps them up at night, uh, what are their priorities in life, what are their gaps. People that come to us are coming to us for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and so what's like the average, uh, I don't say the average client, but like the type of clients you tend to work with, like if there was an avatar. Like obviously, we talked before off camera, like you guys typically have a firm minimum, so you're not working with the guy with six dollars no offense anybody but like typically those people don't have advisors like they just don't go to that so that wouldn't be somebody you serve what's the kind of the what does your client kind of look like if there was one yeah our sweet spot um you know it's evolved over the years um i mean we can help anybody 
but the fact is we don't want to help everybody. I hear so you. I hear you. We're trying to cater to a select few uh, within this boutique, you know, highly structured, highly tailored environment. Um, I would say today, uh, one, you don't know who has money. You don't know uh, where someone's coming from, regardless of age, uh, career choice, uh, how they're how they're making a living. But uh, we've really gravitated, I would say, to uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, of course, retired, pre-retired retirees. Um, uh, we have a lot of uh, high-income earner W-2s uh, that do very well in the corporate setting. You know, C-level executives. Uh, we're dealing with stock options. Uh, but, you know, I would say most of the people working with, they want to delegate to a trusted advisor, someone that can help them navigate this complex world and, and really have a game plan, have a blueprint for life, uh, a strategy for life. Uh, you know, these are people that are already successful. Jeremy, they, they've, you know, quote, made it. Um, but, you know, we have clients that are less than our minimum because uh, – they want help. They want guidance. And I see the, the commitment and their desire to do well and get ahead and uh, make smart choices with their money. But uh, credit investors, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. We work with a lot of credit investors uh, from the, you know, the uh, regulatory side of our world. A credit investor is someone that uh, has a net worth north of a million dollars uh, and household income of and or 300K a year. Um, and that does open up some other channels of uh, investment opportunity, alternative investments or uh, non-liquid investments on occasion uh, outside of the traditional equity markets. And then you guys have clients kind of all across America, right? We do. We've, uh, we've grown uh, because we're a you know, relationship-based firm, referral-based firm. Uh, firm uh, you know, we get clients that come to us, uh, it's particularly with the advent of Zoom now, uh, where we're doing a lot of Zoom calls, but we're in over 30 states, I think, uh, nationally. Uh, I've got a few clients I've never met. You know, they've, they've contacted us. We onboarded them. Uh, obviously, pre-COVID, uh, most of our meetings were always face-to-face. -face. I would sure. fly to see clients uh, because I still feel a face-to-face -face meeting is, is always best if you can do that. Uh, but, yeah, we have a broad uh, footprint. Uh, we serve... Uh, you know, we've got a wonderful client of cluster of clients in Michigan, uh, all the way down to Texas, up the Northeast, the Northwest. And, uh, uh yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, from the great state of Iowa, just South of your home state. Where in Iowa are you from? Actually, you know, people say this in different ways. So I'm from a small rural town, uh, Southwest Iowa, uh, East of people from Red Oak, Iowa, my hometown would say 50 miles East of Omaha. Okay. So if you know the Missouri River, cross over the Missouri down I-80. Because uh, what's else over? Council Bluffs, Iowa? It's like right Council by Bluffs is, uh, yeah. or some people call it Council Tucky. Uh, Council Bluffs is a little rough. <laughs> Sorry, anybody listening. I've been, I've been there. I've been Omaha. I've been yeah. all around. Don't, yeah. take it, don't take it personal in my, my fellow home state yeah. Iowans, but uh, very proud of my roots. I grew up son of an auctioneer. We had a family-owned business for 65 years, and we all worked in the business, but... Uh, wide open spaces, uh, you know, very proud of my roots and my family upbringing. It's good in the summertime. Uh, not so much in the wintertime, my personal opinion. That's why we live here. Obviously, no. I, uh, I pulled into town in 1987, Phoenix. My parents actually relocated here. and I left Indiana where I had an internship for my corporate career and uh, pull, pulled into town four days later and went from 27 to 107. 
But sunshine provides heat. That is true. So. It's crazy though, like, because I've only been here for thirteen, I think thirteen years, and it's so different now than it was thirteen years ago. Like this was nothing. Like when I first like had a gym down the street, we're behind Cracker Jacks, uh, which is like North Scottsdale for you guys listening. But there was like the Scottsdale Quarter was like almost nothing, and there was no Whole Foods. Like none of this shit was even around, which is insane. And I'm sure you've seen the complete transition from when you came here 30 some years ago till now. Oh, I mean, Phoenix, Scottsdale, we all know the demographics. I mean, this is not the well-kept secret it once was. And I think a lot of people came here during the pandemic and never left. Yeah, I've seen the prices of homes. I mean, all real estate here. I mean, a lot of places do in America, but it's gone crazy here, like to a level I've never seen before, which kind of freaks me out a little bit. Yeah, I think I read uh, recently where Arizona uh, Phoenix Metro had the fastest growing uh, housing starts in the country last year, up 29%. That's gnarly, man. Yeah. So a big question we're getting from our clients today is, Michael, what's your you know outlook? What's your picture? And you know nobody really knows when the slowdown will happen. Uh, we don't think it's going to be a housing bubble. I think it'll be a soft correction. But you know we just can't continue at this pace seeing these exorbitant increases. No. Um, you know, and I think rising rates will definitely price people out of the market. Uh, we've already seen the the higher end homes um, uh, start to slow down a little bit. Uh, with some of the market uh, activity going on. And I think consumers are a little more skittish with some of the, the data that's feeding through the economy and uh, the key points that we're tracking today. Because so. like, I always think, I always reverse if my life cycle was different. And I, we'll just talk real estate quick because we're on it. I think if you took the interest rates and just doubled them, it would price a lot of people out almost instantly. But if I had to go back and I was... You know, not 38. I'm 28. I have a 28. I don't have any money at 28. Yeah, I was broke as shit even at 28. <laughs> I didn't have any money. So, like, how would I even buy my own house today? Like, that's, like, for the younger generation. I don't want to sound like, you know, the best days are behind you because that's nonsense. There's all these opportunities and there's entrepreneurship at a level. But it really is kind of freaked me out. When you say, like, a correction, is that, like, 5%, 10%, like, market pullback? Like, what's the... Well... You know, a correction is two consecutive quarters of, uh, you know, deterioration. But, you know, I think it's always very demographic driven because Phoenix, unlike some markets, can recover quicker. Uh, we saw that in 08, you know, 09, places like Vegas, uh, Southern Cal uh, got decimated pretty hard and came back very strong. So uh, I think we're, we're probably talking you know, low single digits if I had to speculate, you know, on the future. And there's certainly a lot more people smarter than I about the analytics and, you know, what this uh, uh, picture will look like in a year or two. But, you know, it, it's it's almost inevitable. Well, yeah, because, like, I look at, I mean, I look at everything, and I'm an idiot who works in a warehouse. What do I know? But, like, when I see stuff, like, how used car prices are so much more expensive now than they were two years ago. But vehicles are older. And obviously, like, with the microchip shortages, and there's a lot of things going on. But I'm like, I look at that, and I'm like, I've never seen that in my life where a vehicle is older, but it costs more today than it did like pre-COVID. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, automotive world uh, has gone through historic growth the last year. And, you know, people are selling their, their used vehicles at a premium. We had a client in the other day that uh, runs a, a pretty big shop here in town. And he said, Michael, I've been in this business for almost 20 years. I've never, ever seen what we've seen the last, you know, 18 months. Just around lot, cars going off the lot used pre-owned and uh you know brand new 
And like when you guys look at like stuff when, and again, obviously nobody can predict the future. Otherwise that person would be 10 times richer than Bezos. But when you look at everything, do you look at stuff like that? Like the, the real estate market, like car sales, you kind of take everything into account when you guys are making decisions. Most definitely. I mean, there's so many key indicators and data points, uh, Flowing, flowing through the economy every day, you know, things that show up on our screen, uh, what we look as a firm, uh, Brandon, my portfolio trader, you know, co-chief investment officer. I mean, he is watching, monitoring, reviewing, listening, uh, researching constantly uh, around, you know, what, uh, what's red, what's green, uh, what's questionable. Uh, particularly right now, we've got a lot of uh, cross currents, a lot of things happening uh, behind the scenes, beneath the surface. Uh, and that's, for your listeners, you know, I would say investing is important. Everybody wants to make money. Who doesn't want to make money, Jeremy? Well, you need to. Like, to I live. I don't want to say this to anybody negatively. Like, I'm not telling you guys what to do, but you can't save your way to be rich or you can't save your way to retirement because you can't even keep up with inflation if your money just sits there. So you have to do it no matter what. Correct? No, no doubt. There's, there's $4 trillion sitting on the sidelines right now. A lot of which crazy. never moved. And we're at historic low interest rates, you know, and we, we have this conversation with our clients uh, continuously about you know, if you've got money sitting in the bank, you're losing money. We've put more money to work this year off the sidelines in our ultra conservative models just to drive some yield and drive some dividends. Uh, but back to your question around, you know, comprehensive uh, goal based financial planning, uh, looking at things holistically. I mean, we, we look at every dollar flowing through our client's household, uh, asset liability. Uh, a lot of people can't tell you what their net worth is, but we're looking at retirement income sources. We're looking at, uh, the risk management mitigation asset protection side of their, their financial story and life. Um, I'm most passionate about planning, which is probably the biggest reason I got into this business is because it all starts with, and, and, I'm preaching to the choir here, but when someone walks into your, your, your gym, what do you want to accomplish? Why are you here? You know, what do you want to achieve? Right. You lay a plan out. Uh, it's, well, it's very similar to you guys. And like, I look at it, our timelines are shorter because I can't sell a 20 year fitness program because nobody wants to buy it. <laughs> even though in reality, like that's what we're selling you. Like we're selling you, you're going to have to eat right and move your ass until you die. And there's no other way around it. But I, that on paper, that's not sexy. And you don't really present it that way either, even though subconsciously it's like, okay, if we're talking just retirement accounts, most people 59 and a half is when they can pull from without penalties on average, if it's just those. So if someone comes to you at 35, that's what they're doing until they're 59 and a half, which it's like, we do the same thing. If, if, you know, Susie comes in and you know, Susie is a hundred pounds overweight and she's like, what do I have to do? I'm like, well, if you lost a half a pound to a pound a week, which I think is aggressive, that's 52 weeks to lose 52 pounds. So you need to be here for at least two years to get to your goal. You guys essentially do the same thing. If you know Roger wants to retire, it really isn't the age in all reality. It's just a number. So if he knows he needs $7 million, you're putting him on a plan to get to $7 million, however you can get there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I just think of the meetings I've had this week. I was in San Diego for a couple of days. And the first thing we talk about when we meet with a client, you know, we do the catch up conversation. What's going on in your life? How is your summer travels? What's on your bucket list? Uh, anything new we need to know about? Uh, but just 
understanding where their family is. But we, we look at the goals. Uh, retirement living income expenses is top of mind and the most important goal, which essentially says, how much money am I going to need to live on the rest of my life when I'm done? The term retirement, by the way, I think is shifting because I don't think people are retiring, certainly uh, like they used to. But uh, we have clients that have, you know, 10, 15 goals on that screen from home improvements to new car to college education to second home, third home, you know, all the toys. Uh, but I can tell someone with a pretty high degree of predictability and probability based on historical rates of return, net inflation. Uh, if you came to me tomorrow and said, Michael, I'd like to have, you know, 300,000 a year for life at 60, we could hone in on that number and say, Jeremiah, Jeremy, you're, you're 142% the plan. And we can run a, a mortality chart that says you're going to have an estate tax problem when you're, you know, 90 years old because your dollar cost averaging, you're putting pre-tax and after-tax dollars away and uh, that one screen that I show probably gives more people peace of mind. Uh, interesting stat, by the way, when we went through the pandemic, um, naturally it was 34 days of misery. Nobody really knew how bad things were going to get. Because uh, the market went like in half, right? Or the Dow anyway. The Dow. To like 17? Yes, yeah, right at 17, and six, it, I think. And now we're, you know, Dow over 35, we're having around 35,000. Which is fucking So we've doubled. It's fucking yeah. crazy. You sat on the sidelines, you know, that $4 trillion I mentioned, you know, that's, uh, it's unfortunate, but, you know, people uh, get paralyzed. We did have a client that, that uh, stayed on the sidelines for about three months, and we finally convinced them to get back in and, you know, dip their toe in, and then we went knee deep and ankle deep, waist deep. So when that ha- when something like that happens to your people, like, and we'll touch on this, I want to, I'm going to get to that in a second. I need to write this down. I'm going to forget. With uh, when you guys look at timelines to retire and somebody like because the baby boomers like you're coming into this generation where you've never had this many people retire at one time who have always had money in the market. Not that they're going to pull it all out necessarily, but it's going to be different. Their spending habits will change when you look at that. And we used to die like, you know, 100 years ago, like 45. So none of this shit really mattered. Now people are living to like to 90. How do you. How does someone guess that, right? Like, and I know your clientele is different, but if someone's listening and they're, they want to retire at, you know, 60 and they're not going to literally make any other money, which I don't think happens as much as people really think now, to live off of that for 30 years, you need a shit ton of money. Like, I mean, even if you're, if you're going to say, oh, okay, I need, need $50,000 a year for 30 years, you need millions of dollars. Like, how do you guys kind of look at that? You just take like an average life expectancy and just like... No, we model this uh, with every single client. Uh, I use a tool called Money Guide Pro, uh, very common in our industry, industry-leading tool. But you know, we take all those those key points. So, 60 years old, I'd like 150,000 a year to live on the rest of my life. Uh, what are you doing in the additions column? What are you doing to save, invest, plan, build wealth? And you know, you can. Uh, run those assumptions, what we call what if scenarios out their whole lifetime. But when I look at a client's picture, Jeremy, I look at it as their investing horizon or, or timeline it is now until death, really. So it continu- so, continues, yeah. Yeah, all the work that you do, the heavy lifting between now and retirement or when you, what I say is, you know, retirement is uh, work is optional, leisure is a choice, 
right? Yeah. Now I've reached Agreed. a point in my life where I can enjoy life. I've, I can do it on my terms. I have, yes, a set income unless, you know, you're ultra wealthy. But, you know, most of our clients want a predictable outcome and they want to know, can I do X? And to get to X, what I need to do. So one of the big numbers on our goal screen is exactly that. I want $5 million by the time I'm 65. And is that possible, Michael, with everything I'm doing? Or it might be a W-2 that's, you know, making 75K a year that says I want to, you know, maintain my lifestyle and be done at, you know, 67. Um, and so you plug it in essentially and it gives them like a projection. Like, okay, if you're saving 1500 bucks a month, you're going to have a shortfall. If you're saving three grand a month, you're probably going to end up in the right spot, give or take. Exactly. Okay. Now, you're either in a deficit and how do you make that up? You know, and I always say it's it's a three-legged stool because you have the market returns, you have the time horizon, and you have how much money am I putting into the engine and feeding the engine, you know, in a well-diversified, allocated portfolio. So when something like like the pandemic does happen, and I remember it because I, well, I, I don't watch the market every day because I don't really give a shit. I believe in America, and so I'm going to keep pumping money into it. And I trust my advisor enough not to steal from me for the most part. But I'm, I think I'm way more aware than the average person is. So I do check it uh, like more often than not. But I remember it went down to 17. And I'm like, the world is just eating shit right now. Do you guys do anything? I think, well, I think you sent out an email because I think I got an email from you like when it, like around then, probably on your newsletter or whatever. But do you have to reach out to your people or do people call you in like a panic during that time? Or doesn't it happen as much? I think because of our process and how we communicate with our clients and uh, the ongoing reviews, uh, what we call progress review meetings, accountability meetings, uh, where we're seeing our clients throughout the year, we're talking to them throughout the year. Um, I was so impressed with our clients uh, not hitting the panic button. Yeah, there were some you know, pretty delicate conversations, but uh, I think because our clients, one, you know, they delegate their wealth they trust us to do the right thing and execute. And, you know, we always have two hands on the wheel managing through good and bad markets. And you have to work twice as hard, 10 times as hard, you know, during a volatile or down market. But, uh, you know, what we learned through that process was because of planning for those clients that plan, uh, it maybe created a one to three, four percent max difference in the long term picture. You know, this was a health humanitarian crisis. It wasn't a, a economic crisis. Yeah. And I think people knew that. The backdrop was, was pretty strong, you know, at the time this happened. I mean, we had, as you know, uh, 128 months of economic expansion, you know, going back to uh, 08, 09. It's yeah. like the second longest run ever? No, longest ever. Longest ever. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. So it has to happen. And so I, I always ask, because I know people do, like, freak out and panic. But if you're somebody... Like, let's say I'm watching it happen and I'm like, okay, the world is melting and I just have money sitting there and I'm like, hey, what do you think I should do? Then you guys would, you'd go in and just buy stuff like you normally would because it's on the cheap essentially. Yeah. We, you know, we're tactical traders. Um, you know, we look at everything, but you, you have to know as hard as it was, uh, you know, there was 21 million people that were put out of work by May 1st. All those things weigh into the economy, 20, uh, May 1st of 20. Um, but a lot of our clients, uh, we either call them, they pick up the phone and call us, but there's just a constant two-way dialogue around 
what we're doing uh, differently. We bought into the dip, uh, no different than what's happened this year during you know two or three pullbacks. People are buying the dip, but we bought the dip hard. Um, when we saw the, the transition to the stay-at-home world, I mean, you think about Megatech, uh, the stay-at-home stocks that we all know. and Oh, Zoom and Peloton and shit went crazy. Oh, dude. yeah. And, you know, that's why a lot of people got on the Robinhood train, right? And the crypto train, which we'll probably talk about yeah. today. But, you know, people were sitting at home, uh, whether they're doing their jobs or not, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, 50, I know some people that lost their jobs. 50-50, <laughs> yeah. Um, because they weren't working or being productive, but you know, that's, that's a whole nother discussion. But I think, you know, when you talk about building wealth and, and building capital, uh, building an asset base over a lifetime, what I can tell you from the success stories from young investors that started with me right out of ASU, putting hundred bucks a month away, Jeremy, and then 200 and then 500, you know, fast forward 18 years later, uh, these clients have, you know, well over half a million in the bank, not including their 401k. That's just with us. You well, know, and just discipline, steady, stay the course, good and bad markets, you know, markets are efficient. Uh, you know, as long as the markets have been around, uh, you know, good and bad markets will prevail. You just have to stay disciplined. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, and I would tell anybody this too, because um, I didn't have any money as a kid, obviously. Um, but as soon as I could contribute to, I only had one like real job, I call it a real job. I had like one like corporate job where they had like a 401k, so I pumped in. But everything else I've done on my own, like through when I could do Roth IRAs and then now like we have a SEP set up here and other investments like mutual funds outside of retirement, whatever it may be. The first hundred grand is the most painful because it takes fucking forever. And it seems like, and I would check it like it was a bank account at first. Like so you'd have like $28,000. Then you'd have like $22,000. I'm like, well, this is bullshit, but you can't do that. And the one thing I did here a long time ago, I don't know if it was like, if it was Dave Ramsey or whoever did, said it, it was just like, if you believe in America, like this is what you're investing in basically. Cause for it to not work, the whole thing has to just basically collapse. And at that point we're killing each other in the streets. Like it's just, it's all at war. So that kind of kept my brain. Okay. I believe in this, whether you believe like right or wrong, what it is like the system is going to keep going. Like these corporate machines that you are buying into have to keep producing because the whole system is set up for them to be more profitable basically every 90 days forever. And that's kind of what you buy into. But it's hard when you're young because you're saving money, saving money, and like you don't have a lot. But once you get to 100, at least in my experience, then you can start to see it compound and be like, holy shit, now I have real money, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've often said compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. If you really understand it, uh, you know how it works. You know the velocity of money. Uh, what's been really cool uh, for our clients this last you know, couple of years, especially pre-pandemic, but I've never seen clients have so much cash. You know, there's a lot of cash in the system. A ton uh, right now. ton of cash. And, you know, our clients have come into a lot of cash and, you know, they've put those cash to work and it might be conservative, it might be growth moderate, aggressive, whatever it might be. Uh, but, you know, these, these clients, uh, many of them have turned millionaire status investable assets over the last two or three years. You know, we work with a lot of high net worth people, but it's just been neat to see people that have done the old fashioned way, just dollar cost av, save, build wealth by adding monthly 
systematically investing. I've heard you on one of your podcasts, I think the Overnight Success podcast. You know, you got to pay it like a bill. Pay yourself first, always. You know, and, and unfortunately, people typically do the opposite, you know. Well, it's because it's not fun. It's like who wants to eat right, like all the time. It's not as sexy as eating like shit. It doesn't taste as good anyway. And it, nobody can convince me otherwise. Like cinnamon rolls always taste better than asparagus. It's just the reality. I go, but if you do it consistently over time, it does pay off. But it's our stuff's all set in like auto draft for the most part, all our accounts, unless like we want to. If I come into money or something happens, like I'll call and I'll just like, hey, here's five grand, here's ten grand. Like that's kind of how we do it. And I try to, you know, spread it around where I think it's important. The one thing I was going to ask, uh, how much cash do you tell people to to keep on hand, or don't you tell them? You just let them kind of do what they want. Like I've heard people say three months expenses, six months expenses, but that everybody needs a certain security blanket and sometimes people feel comfortable in that versus having it in not just retirement accounts because essentially like I don't think you should touch those and I'm sure you probably agree but if it's you know I have mutual funds that Heather and I invest in that are not retirement accounts but I don't look at it as like I'm going to pull money from that anytime in the next like you know four or five years that's why I have it there yeah no you'd laugh if you saw my bank balances and say this guy didn't have any money where's all his money that's the key though <laughs> But uh, it's a very good question, and you know, particularly over the last year with interest rates as low as they are, uh, no bank yields. Uh, we always tell clients, listen, we're not your ATM. Uh, this isn't around the corner ATM money. You need money for bill paying, for enjoying life, traveling, uh, taking care of you know your day-to-day -day needs. But uh, it's a three-day event to give someone liquidity, and if you can get you know two to four percent uh, interest bearing you know, in a low volatility uh, scenario, uh, it doesn't make any sense to keep money sitting on the sidelines today. Uh, I would tell you it just varies. You know, some people uh, that feel cash is king. And we had a conversation actually yesterday, client uh, inherited some land, uh, about 400, 425,000. Um, with the headlines today, the way they are, uh, they're they're a little skittish because they're not sure about where this economy is going. We've got fiscal policy changes. We've got uh, inflationary pressures. We've got new administration. Uh, you know, there's just a lot on the table. But you know, we talk them through that and you know share with them what we do for a conservative ultra ultra conservative account. But it just doesn't make any sense to leave a lot of money sitting on the sidelines unless you're planning for a goal. I need this for home improvement. I got to get a new car. Uh, like. Know, how many, uh, like how many years, uh, let's say someone's listening and they're like, I want to buy a new house in Scottsdale, which in five years is going to be a trillion dollars. So you're basically screwed either way. Um, in my opinion, but maybe not, uh, if they're going to put it into an investment account, like if it is like something outside of retirement, should they set it in that? Or should they just keep it like in a savings account and say, Hey, my goal is to buy a house in the next five years versus if it was only a year down the line. Like where, what, how would you tell someone? Yeah. I mean, it's harder with short-term money because you need a, a decent window to make money work. I mean, you've got to uh, invest and, and, you know, prepare for short-term volatility for the, for the ultra conservative buckets. Everyone's different, but you know, to, to build a savings account on 0.01%, you're losing money, you're losing money. Yeah. And so, uh, it's not a, neat, a difficult argument to say, you know, this money is always there. It's liquid. It's rainy day. It's supplemental goal funding needs, whatever you need to uh, 
prepare and save. And, you know, we'll work with them on uh, finding the best loan terms, finding the best uh, rates that we can. We look at, you know, we're managing every aspect of that client's life. But, uh, you know, they've got to be able to put money away consistently in that after-tax account. And that's something, Jeremy, I think is important to bring up too is, why is there so much money in 401ks and retirement accounts? People are forced to save, direct deposit, payroll deduction. People can do that because it's on autopilot. But when it gets, when it comes to an after-tax account, it's a lot harder to say, I'm going to auto-invest or systematically save. And, you know, people are, are not necessarily our clients, but you see people being cash poor and retirement you know, rich, 401k rich. And what happens when that air conditioner goes out or you have an emergency need and you've got to tap an IRA or tap a 401k, you know, you're paying penalties and, and which is a terrible excess idea. taxes. Yeah. yeah. So the point is, you know, you've got to balance between pre pre-tax and after-tax dollars and try to, you know, build that after-tax savings account, which, you know, a lot of our clients do, you know, you do it in a trust, uh, or you do it in a you know joint right of survivorship or a transfer on death account. Uh, that account is labeled entitled no differently than the way it is at your bank. And there's a, a relationship with the bank when someone dollar cost average. But just not a believer of leaving you know, a lot of a lot of idle dollars sitting around today, especially. So if you need some for a car, like in a year, you can save for that and just buy it. But if it's longer than a couple years, like you would say, invest the money otherwise. You're losing money. Yeah, we, we typically would say, you know, nine months is a good window or more to be able to put dollars to work because you know, we can drive dividends and drive interest off uh, some of the bond positions that we own. Um, you know, we had the credit crisis, as you know, and there was no one was immune to loss last Mar- a year ago, March, right? For sure. Everything tanked <laughs> quickly. And, you know, for retired and senior people that, thought they owned bonds that would never go down. I think they learned a hard lesson. So that was a big wake up call. But I think a year plus is a good time horizon. And, you know, we, we will work with clients on a shorter basis. But, uh, you know, there, like I said, there's a number of goals that people save for. And for people listening, like when we say, you know, don't just keep the money sitting in a bank because you're losing money. I'm assuming most people understand that because what is inflation on average? Like, well, I mean, now it's, I don't fucking know what's going on. But normally, what is it, 3% a year, something like that? Well, historically, I mean, if you go back to, uh, you know, last 50, 60 years, you know, it's it's been north of 3% on average. You know, our, our, our plans run around 3.5%, which is high. We're, you know, we're clicking the 3% plus mark. Um, but we're still at historical low inflation rates, if you look at the big picture. Uh, obviously, the 70s, you know, really... Uh, flipped those numbers pretty, pretty difficult in the opposite direction, but, or skewed the numbers rather. So if it's 3% a year is what the cost of life is going up is, is how I like to say it, but the bank's giving you zero, zero, zero point one percent your $10,000 is worth less every single year you let it sit there. And that's what I would tell people listening. Like, that's why you can't save your way to retirement. It is literally impossible. Like even the highest earning people by getting taxed and things like it's just not a, it's the dumbest thing you can do, in my opinion. I'm not trying to judge anybody, but I, there's no way I could be in this position today if everything hasn't appreciated the way it has, whether it be in the market or real estate that we own. I mean, literally, if you look at most of my net worth, like that's what it is. It's not 
my savings account. Not even close. Yeah. So when you guys look at this stuff, obviously you've been through all these life cycles. Like how gnarly was like, you know, 07, 08 versus like the pandemic, basically. Obviously, they're two different things. One of them, we're selling homes to people who can't buy them. But are they any similarities or like differences? Like what did you notice? I would say two completely different events. Uh, you know, when I was meeting with clients in 07, 08, prior to, you know, the, the financial, the great recession, great financial crisis, uh, it was hard to convince people to diversify because real estate assets were going up at such a rapid rate. Um, that collapse happened over a period of, you know, months, you know, two years where this was very short lived. Uh, the biggest difference is, uh, you didn't have the stimulus that you have this time around. Uh, you did infusion of capital and cash. The government didn't intervene like they did today, which kept people afloat and kept people going. Uh, but completely different events in terms of, uh, I think, how people maneuvered. Uh, going back to 07, 08, I probably had no less than 10, 15 clients that had to tap IRAs just to survive. No shit. Just to get through it. Because they, they own so much real estate that just... So real estate top-heavy and, you know, it, it's just hard to have a conversation with someone that uh, gets greedy about a particular asset class or uh, a sector, you know, crypto being one of those today, you know. Uh, but people, you know, they, they only want to do what they want to do in, in those times of desperation and... Uh, we didn't have one person have to exit or cash out. Obviously, there were unemployment benefits. I don't think we even had more than a couple of people lose their jobs. But um, this time around, the pandemic, uh, it's just a completely different world in terms of you know, how people have responded and reacted. Obviously, a major, major crisis. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I listened to, obviously, Heather you know, works for uh, a giant, giant company. And I remember she got furloughed for like eh, six months, give or take. And obviously the hospitality industry just gets murdered like right off the bat. But I remember listening to, um, she's on a conference call and I can hear people, um, like the first day they're being furloughed, like asking like, will they have access to like their, their 401k money, which blew my fucking mind. Cause I'm like, you haven't even lost a single check yet, but yet that's where people's mentality goes because they are so crazy leveraged. And to hear that, and you know, it's real, but like, you don't really feel it until you hear people say it, which is kind of gnarly, actually, because this was so fast compared to other things that have obviously went on. And the reason I bring it up is just to, to talk like how you have people, I guess, or the importance of diversification and them obviously, you know, having their assets across the board and like not doing all, you know, stocks or not doing all real estate or all crypto, whatever it may be. Like, how do you guys kind of approach that? And I'm sure it's different person to person. Yeah, it depends on the size of the, you know, account or relationship or the assets that we're managing. I mean, everyone's heard it, diversify, diversify, diversify. And I think, you know, to stomach uh, headwinds, to stomach a down environment, uh, to maneuver through uh, the volatility, particularly that we're seeing right now, uh, you know, some a lot of choppiness out there today, but... You know, you would find in a million dollar portfolio with us today, probably no less than 35 or 40 holdings, uh, maybe more. 
crossed a, a broad spectrum of asset classes, style boxes, value growth, blend, international. Um, you know, there's some inflationary equity hedging going on. There's uh, commodities that are designed to you know, also offset some of the inflation that's happened. But, you know, it's just really hard to cherry pick uh, one style box or one asset class. And, and it's, you know, for the same reason, you know, when you're when you're racing ponies, you're not going to pick the same pony every time out of the gate. A uh, lot of analogies, but, you know, we believe in blended portfolios, tactical portfolios across to just a, a wide swath of opportunity. And, you know, you, you can't, uh, in today's world, as fast as things are moving, you can't, in my view, because there's the, the passive, what I call park and pray S&P mindset. I'm going to buy the S&P and just sit on it, right? But you have to be more tactical. Uh, I use the sailing and rowing analogy. You have to row when things are challenging and difficult. Uh, you know, when we have headwinds, we have volatility. And when, when the sky's blue and jobs are good and people are spending money and uh, GDP is, you know, uh, running hot, then, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an easier discussion. But uh, I think you've got to diversify. You've got to you know, have a well-allocated blended portfolio. We use ETFs. We use mutual funds. We use individual stocks. Uh, we're using defensive hedge. Uh, you'd see a lot of different things, uh, all of which, by the way, have a lot different yields, right, year-to-date, historically, which is why you do that. So you don't go heavy into one thing in case that one thing eats major shit, and then you're basically ass out, in my very technical terms, the way I describe <laughs> it. And in terms of, like, benchmarks, like, uh, what do you guys try to shoot for? Like, in, obviously... You know, there are arguments you go across the board. There's, and again, when you go in, and I've, we have enough people here that work in finance. I've done this long enough where I've gotten this like secondary education, which is honestly pretty amazing. But if I ever get on YouTube or like a podcast and I listen to finance stuff, it is all across the board. Um, and you can really get into a rabbit hole and it freaks me out. And then I feel like I don't know anything. So I try not to do it as much. But like people make arguments for like, you know, the S&P. Like most, you know, fund managers really can't beat it over time because the fees are close to zero. It's easy, but that's the S&P really can't, that market can't grow faster than the economy in the long run. And there's so many things that go into just that. So like, do you guys have certain like benchmarks you try to kind of, I guess, hit or kind of go by when you? I mean, we're, we're tracking the traditional bench, benchmarks, you know, the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, EFA, uh, you know, Europe, Asia, Far East, and you know, unless you're in an all equity portfolio, which for us is, um, you know, pure growth, um, it's really hard to benchmark against, you know, performance wise against a strategy because we have a lot of different things working in tandem. Uh, so I wouldn't say we're trying to compete with the benchmarks. We're certainly comparing and contrasting when we're charting for sure performance. Uh, but uh, benchmarks are just a barometer, right? Uh, you could have the Dow. Dow this year is right around 15%. Small caps are up about 13%. S&P is up about 19%. NASDAQ's right there with the S&P. Um, you know, tech took a hit February. You know, we had the February tech meltdown and then things rallied pretty heavily. And all those mega tech COVID stocks you mentioned, you know, Peloton, Zoom examples. Went crazy. Uh, yeah, they went crazy. And then, you know, they've since pulled back. Um, but... Well, that's, I'm sure your guys' stuff too is, and that's why, obviously, I can't day trade. I'm not smart enough to do anything like that. Um, I buy shit and hold on to it, like, basically for 
you know, usually a long time. I remember like Smart. last year, God, what was it? American Airlines. Like I had so much American Airlines shit. And like I'd have a talk, you know, uh, I usually talk with my dude every, uh, probably three times a year, maybe more if I need to harass him for stuff. And I'm pretty good about email. But I remember like American Airlines is just like eating shit forever. And there's all this, not only like with COVID, but they had their own issues uh, with the jet stuff. And I remember just thinking, I'm like, well, we're going to fly planes. Like, we're going to do that. I'm like, so I might as well just sit here and just hang out. Because I'm like, what, are we not going to have American Airlines? Like, that's kind of how my brain, I guess, tracks. And I think that's what most people probably should do. Except it's hard when when you think of it as real money. And I guess I'm sure you tell your people the same thing. I mean, or the normal person listening. You didn't lose any money unless you sold it. Otherwise, it's just there. So it's the perceived value of it today. Like, if Marriott stock goes up 10 bucks or down 10 bucks, I don't think the company is worth ten dollars or less than ten dollars is just what the feeling is today which is really weird for somebody listening like i'll look at the ticker like if the fed has their minutes or something happens or there's covid concerns the market will go up and down but you didn't lose anything unless you dumped it yeah no it's it's a point in time snapshot and we talked earlier about the patient investors long-term investors uh you know people have created a ton of wealth owning long-term positions I mean, if you bought Apple, you bought Google, you bought Facebook, you bought Microsoft, you bought Amazon, you know, I mean, uh, we all know the story there. And those companies aren't going away. You know, Square, PayPal. They're too uh, big, man. Yeah. And, you know, those are just stalwarts in any portfolio today. So, which brings me into the whole crypto blockchain uh, world. You're, I just, I'll just let us leave it as that. Like, there's a lot of information around this, and I've done the due diligence that I can, and I'm starting to understand more of it, maybe the technology part of it. I understand because this is a digital world, uh, and this is my belief system: is it's digital. Uh, we're not going backwards from that. As much as I might hate living on Instagram for an hour a day, returning messages, I'm like, that's part of my life now. This podcast, which probably would have cost $30,000 to create, now we can do it with a couple thousand dollars piece of equipment. This is the world we live in. So with that said, I think digitizing things is only going to move ahead. So I kind of get the, the blockchain portion of how things are moving that way. But what do you guys think of, of cryptocurrency? Do you look at it? Are you, I mean, how do you how do you deal with it? Yeah. The, the whole uh, world of crypto has skyrocketed this year, uh, more than ever. We've gotten more inquiries, more interest. Uh, from clients. From just clients. And I mean, you can't, if someone, I'm sitting next to someone on a plane and we start talking about the financial world. And they know what you do. First thing they're going to say is, what do you think of crypto? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, a lot of education to bring us to where we are today. I mean, crypto has been around since 09, 2010, digital assets, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum. But, you know, I personally think, and I know uh, my team feels this too, that, you know, we're in a new financial and internet ecosystem. I think uh, the crypto bubble is not going to burst. I think it's going to evolve over the next 10 years. Uh, I think the innovative side of crypto is, is here to stay. Uh, it's about long-term wealth creation and, you know, trying to predict the daily price movement. I think the biggest concern I have is just people that don't know what they're doing and don't understand it. And, 
you've got a lot of you know what I call water cooler conversations that are taking place and and I've had a few clients that have made a lot of money on Bitcoin uh, they just they went off uh, studied it learned it it's part of their plan uh, we we uh, dipped in this year uh, actually last quarter we have a, a private equity Bitcoin in uh, Bitcoin indexing fund that that we started investing with with one of the the brightest minds on Wall Street um, but you know people have FOMO right people are, are yes. afraid of saying you know is this really here to stay you think about the internet of stocks I mean I was there in uh, early 2002 when I started my career when we had the tech bubble that's really when day trading started uh, I don't know if you remember I've got you by a few years yeah Jeremy but people were trading stocks mutual funds were up a hundred percent and I mean a lot of the names that've gone away uh, people were trading, but day trading has always been here. And, you know, I, I think the same with crypto. Uh, it's just a new financial world and uh, it is here to stay. I think undoubtedly the future uh, bull and bear markets will continue around crypto and uh, the technology feed of solving the digital security and innovation currently happening in the space, uh, you know, it can't be forgotten. It's it's definitely something that I think will make its way. You know, we've got really a couple issues on the table around crypto right now is regulation and taxation. This is a global problem. Uh, how how we figure this out uh, as a as a world as a a global you know banking perspective, merchant banking is going to be key. Uh, but you know, our regulators now are starting to look at it. Uh, they're obviously catching a lot of cyber criminal activity along the way, uh, but. You know, our view is uh, own it at some level if you like it as a, a macro hedge, if you like it as a, a defensive play, particularly against some of the volatility. You just got to be able to stomach uh, the, the ebbs and flows. And last thing I'll say is if you're investing in crypto today, you should probably think about maybe losing all of that at some point. You know, unlike owning a Microsoft, which we know is not going away. Yeah. Well, I do think like the adoption is so great like i don't think it goes to zero but i mean i've seen it swing from 60 to 30. so imagine losing half your money in a day because that's what happened which is fucking nuts <laughs> to think which most people can't stomach that like when you look at it do you think of it more as like a it's like a gold type thing or is it like a currency or somewhere in between no i i think it's a legitimate currency uh, i say legitimate uh, it's not legitimate yet, but it, it is a currency. You know, you think about the way we bartered 100 years ago, you know, going to a cash system. This is just the next evolution of like you know, digital. This ecosystem is digital. You know, do you ever use your phone to pay, you know, digitally for anything? Gas station, uh, well, clothing now store. I'm going to the Vikings game on Sunday and everything is on the phone and it can't just be a screenshot. They're like, you have to bring the internet ticket and the same thing for the parking, which is the first time I've ever seen that, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where we're at. No, I, I just think it's here. It's, it's here to stay. Uh, that's my view. Um, you know, I own it. Uh, I'm an investor in crypto at a small level, but you know, I'm willing to you know, let this thing play out over the next 10 years. Is there like a percentage You'd tell someone like 1% of your portfolio, 2%? I think 1% to 2% max, yeah. you know, today is, is, you know, probably reasonable. If you're willing to, you know, take some risk uh, and stomach that volatility along the way. Yeah, because we do. Um, but I basically said, I'm like, I'm willing to do it with money that I would light on fire in my driveway. 
Like, that's how I think of it. Because yeah. I'm like, I won't miss it then that way. It's the biggest pain in the ass, honestly, for me, was just to get a little cold storage wallet to figure out how to transfer all that shit. Because it's a pain in the ass, actually. Yeah. It's you like, have a lot of the institution, you know, there's ETFs out there now. A lot of the institutions, uh, bigger institutions have gotten involved. And, you know, we prefer to do it uh, with a proven, uh, well-known, reputable industry leader in our space. Someone that's been doing this for nine, 10 years that uh, you know, can kind of guide and direct those funds and do all the back office activity. And, uh, you know, we're not telling clients to own it directly. It's, well, it's a mess, dude. Like the amount of coins alone. And like, I mean, from Bitcoin to Ethereum, I mean, there's a thousand things. There's no way any human, I don't think your brain can like, unless this is all you do every day. But it's gnarly to see, for sure. I was just interested to ask because people... Well, it's still very speculative, a lot, you know, similar to Robinhood, people that are on Robinhood, you know, not to take anything away from young investors and probably some old ones too. But like but, when you're doing GameStop shit, like when they're pumping and dumping and doing these things where it's like, if you don't know that's going on, like you're caught like with your pants down and you can lose a lot of money, which I don't think a lot of people, you just have to be prepared. It's you're gambling essentially. No, it's exactly what it is. You, you are gambling and you've got to be willing to. You know, understand the markets and how they move. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that wealth creation happens through discipline, long-term investing, you know, broad allocation, global positioning, and, you know, being tactical. And having a coach helps, for sure, like anything in life. Having a trusted advisor, coach, uh, you know, as we said, there's a lot of metaphors in our space that, that toggle back and forth. So if I jump into this one, uh like 401ks, just really quick, because um, I pulled these numbers from Fidelity, like the average kind of American's retirement savings, which is pretty, it's pretty scary to read them. Like it, the average person in their 20s has like $16,000, in their 30s is like 45000 in their 40s is 63000 in their 50s is 117k, and someone in their 60s who in theory should be like in retirement has 172 thousand dollars total now obviously these aren't the people that you guys work with but this is just like a broad scope but like when you see that like how fucking scary is that to hear someone is 65 years old and has a hundred and sixty thousand dollars i mean it's it's pretty mind-blowing to be honest um, and that's the, I, that's I, the average yeah and and obviously these are you know a lot of different types of people walking the planet domestically internationally uh, you know, people just don't save. Um, and I always use the analogy, Jeremy, that I've got a $50,000 W-2 that saves better, harder, faster than a $300,000 W-2. It's how you approach it. Um, I've listened to enough of your podcasts to know that you're a serial entrepreneur, you're a serial saver, you you um, believe in no debt, uh, you know, and it's, you either program that way, a lot of people aren't, you know, given the training and the tools to make smart choices. I told you earlier, definition of a sophisticated investor, someone that's lost money once and not enjoyed the experience. I think that should be everybody, right? <laughs> but here we are. But, you know, they don't give you the, the, the playbook. Uh, and, you know, it's not that complex. You just got to be willing to pay yourself, pay yourself first, pay yourself off. And these, these numbers, frankly, are uh, pretty sad. You know, we see what's going on in, in uh, America. And, you know, you talk about the differences from uh, 08 
being a, a huge wake up call for a lot of people. We saw people going back to basics, going back to fundamentals, putting their plans back in place, really starting to save again. And, and unfortunately we've taken a big step back, you know, with the, the cost of money being so cheap, people are, uh, you know, increasing their debt picture again and their debt load, you know, which weighs down their household, which doesn't allow them to, to put money away. And I mean, I get it. Um, and I've talked about this, like we've had other finance people on the podcast before. And honestly, like the, the most listened to podcast we've ever done is when I paid off my house, not initially, but over time, it's made it to the top of the queue. I don't know if it's algorithms or YouTube or whatever the deal is. Um, but I've never had more people roast me um, and tell me I was a fucking moron for doing that than any other podcast. And then COVID happens like a month later, my gym is closed. My wife loses her job. And then obviously I won, but Your mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Oh yeah. It was um super p- big pain in the ass. Uh, I probably have less than 10 clients that have zero debt and I have young clients that have zero debt, but that's, that's no easy feat. No. And and I'm not saying to people like, I understand if I leverage certain things, I could in theory acquire way more money. There is debt that you can use in a way if you're okay with the risk of it. I always was from the, I grew up in the Midwest. Obviously it's the same kind of mentality. Like we never had money. I never thought I could be a millionaire and I could do all these things that I do now. I go, but for me, I'm like, I just sleep better at night knowing if like, or if one day I'm just like, fuck it, I've had enough of fitness. I don't want to do this, which probably never happened. But like, if I wanted to shift gears, I don't have this. I always looked at it as like an anchor weighing me down. Like, I don't want to deal with like managing five different rental properties and doing things like that's not who I am. So for me to have less on my brain, I'm free to do more stuff. And the crazy thing is once that shit went away, like now I can do all these things that do generate money and I'm free that way. Where for a lot of people, they're like, well, if I leverage this to this, this, yes, in the perfect world, that's a way you can make a shit ton of money. But if the world doesn't go perfect or something goes wrong, can you stomach the losses like anything we invest in? Yeah. Yeah. I had a client years ago that, uh, you know, I helped him make some pretty tough choices and decisions and they got out of debt and they got back into debt. They got out of debt again, third time around. I said, I can't help you anymore. You know, people just really struggle, you know, with, with uh, credit card, you know, it's like the uh, 08 crisis, you know, using your home as an ATM card. That's what a lot of people did. Which is crazy. I mean, I remember, I mean, it, it helped me a ton and I feel bad for everybody who lost their shit. I'm like, I was just a, lucky uh, life lifetime circumstance so I could buy properties and do what I do today but it was um but I remember do I remember looking at properties way back then too and like they would be so destroyed like people would rip out their cabinets they would take off light fixtures like every property I looked at was like a short sale or a foreclosure which now you don't which is crazy because now I don't see any foreclosures or any short yeah, sales yeah 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 I mean I think some of that will be coming in Scottsdale you know, or no um I don't know here though. No, I, I don't know about, you know, locally here. I think, you know, with the forbearance on loans and things that have happened, you know, unless people get back to work, you know, obviously that'll show its true colors here before too long. But, um, you know, you've had a lot of, uh, a lot of government uh, intervention around allowing people to stay in, in rentals and, you know, not being, not having to pay their mortgage for months on end, you know, and so a lot what, of- what does that do to the, the overall you know, economic picture? And a lot of free money, like for a long time, like a shit ton of money pumped in. Yeah. Like when you guys see that, what do you think? Like this is cool or this is, there's a negative part to it. I mean, not just with, here's all these checks, these PPP loans that went fucking berserk. Like there's so much extra money 
that I feel like I've never seen before. And it makes me feel like this is probably not a good thing. Well, I think that's why I have lingering concerns now about, you know, rising inflation and probably uh, rising taxes. I mean, we've all heard part of the agenda. The current administration is we're going to be looking at a, a higher tax base everywhere. You know, if you're in California today. Oh, my God, dude. You, you could potentially be facing, you know, 55, 60 percent uh, taxable situation on your hands, you know, with all the taxation that's going on. But who wants to do that? You know, capital gains. We've had, I don't know, five, six clients leave California in the last year. Where they you know, the one, uh, Arizona, Texas, uh, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, anywhere but California. And, you know, I love, spent a lot of time there. I lived there for several years. I've got amazing clients there. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's very, very challenging environment politically, uh, you know, governmentally, everything that's going on just, you know, I think lacks leadership. Yeah. I, we love it too. Like I love Coronado. Like I would live there for sure. Um, and I jokingly pull up a place there the other day for her and it was like a million and a half bucks. And I'm like, okay, let's say I could buy it. All right. Just pay a million and a half straight. The, it was a condo. Um, there was a single family home till I'll tell the story quick. Um, cause Heather was there, uh, for a bachelorette party having fun. And I looked at this condo, the condo was a million and a half bucks, but the monthly taxes were $1,500 monthly taxes were 1500. I think the HOA was like 800 bucks. So meaning if I owned it outright, my minimum payment without insurance or like utilities was $2,300. And that seems fucking bananas to me, which is a you know decent mortgage here. Yeah. yeah. Like for a nice, for a nice place. There was a house there. Uh, the the house was a million dollars. Uh, the monthly taxes were a thousand. The house was six hundred and ten square feet, and the lot was like nine fifty. It's like big as my office in the lobby right here. The whole fucking house for a million bucks. In which I get like the prime location. I go, but those taxes are only going up, and that just seems like I don't know how people do it. And I love I like I love Coronado, you know, Encinitas, Del Mar, like Orange County. It's all great places. Oh, it's one of the most beautiful spots in the world. For Man, sure. you, you pay for it. Yeah. With the taxes for sure. Um well, you've got a lot of people, as you know, relocating here, buying paying cash, not thinking twice about a million and a half, two million dollar purchase. Well, that's I've told people, I mean, that's what I feel for the kid who is twenty six that doesn't own property yet. Because he kind of got priced out. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak. Who knows what will happen? But it'd be like if I moved back to, you know, nor Iowa or nor Minnesota, and like here's a super nice house for 600k. I'm like, well, fuck. I'll buy that and pay cash today. What does that matter? Because if I sell my house here for a million, I can easily afford. That's what's happening here. Just the scale is just bigger, which is kind of crazy to see. So with that said, if you are somebody who is younger, like how early do you tell them to like start investing money and like, how do they go about it when their income maybe isn't high or they, they want to save for a house. Maybe they're paying off, you know, student loans or credit cards or car payment or whatever the hell it is. Like, how would you advise someone who's their 26 year old kid with a normal kind of, you know, debt load? You teed that up perfect for me because, um, three of my stakeholders are in their you know, late twenties, 27, all three of them actually. Wise beyond their years, uh, all three of my stakeholders, uh, the, the three that I'm talking about, bought homes this last year. Well, Brandon actually bought a home probably three or four years ago now, and he's refinanced like five times. In Scottsdale here? In Scottsdale. Uh, South, South Scottsdale. But, you know, he bought at X and 
You know, he's he's first time home buyer. He's seeing incredible inflation and equity, but you know these these guys would not be able to do this if they didn't understand the markets, how to put money to work, uh, you know, how to take advantage of cycle, and you know they want to be homeowners, right? These will be rental properties for them, likely. They'll be able to parlay into something different down the road if they don't need the equity. But super proud of you know the, this young generation. And for the first time ever, Jeremy, you've got the younger generation that has, is considered home buyers. The, the young generation has just sort of disappeared in the home buying world over the last decade. You know, I mean, if you're living in San Francisco making 150, 200 a year, you're, you're saving for probably five, 10 years to find something. That's a piece of shit. <laughs> That's right? not super. I mean, it's crazy though. Yeah. I thought about the other day because we were looking, uh, Heather has a friend. She's like looking at a place. I think it was uh, Denver maybe, like downtown. And just, it's it's, almost, it's like worse than here. It's like worse than Scottsdale almost. I was looking and I was like, she would need like 150 to $200,000 cash up front just to get into a place, which is crazy to me to think like a young person. How do they, so how would you tell somebody if they're like, hey, I really want to own a home but I only make X, but should I save some for retirement or do I wait and put it all into saving for a house and then do retirement afterwards? I think it's largely where you live, uh, how you want to live the choice of, of lifestyle. You know, people live in San Diego. There's trade-offs knowing that they can't afford, you know, to pay the median price home. There is, you know, eight thirty, eight forty now, I think. It's crazy. You know, I bought my very first, I built my very first house in uh, Chandler for $84,000 uh, when I moved here in 1990. That's, le that's <laughs> less than like half the cars that pull in this parking lot. My was... mortgage was $612 and my roommate paid half of that. That's, so, bad. <laughs> that's badass, dude. And then when I moved back here from Florida in 94, I paid a hundred, I paid two thirty, and I thought, wow, that's a ton of money. Yes. It was a ton of money. So, I, mean, I still think <laughs> still it is, a lot yeah. of money, but Comparative. you know, and just to think about the escalators and how you know appreciation has taken fold, and you know, we think the best laid plans are are a combination of all those types of assets that are working for you around the clock, and uh, you know, equities, real estate, crypto, if you will, a uh, lot of ways to combat all the different forces that are taking place. But you know, if you're a young investor. You got to have a plan. It all starts with a plan. And, and if you have a plan, you're going to know what your options are. You're going to know how quickly you can flip the switch and get into something. You know, first time home buyers, there's uh, concessions. You know, you have less down. You can borrow from a Roth IRA. You know, there's there's a lot of flexibility there for a younger person today. But And you can borrow from a Roth if you pay it back. Is that right? Without a penalty or no? Without a penalty. Yeah. You can borrow... Uh, I think if you've had that Roth over five years, it's been a while since we did one of these, but you could take money from it and like, it's like a payment plan, right? Yeah. Otherwise you get taxed 10% plus your tax rate. 10% plus penalty. So don't do that. Well, if you don't pay it back or if you don't give a if shit, you're a, if you're a first time home buyer, uh, you know, you have all that tax deferred growth that's available to you, which by the way, that's probably a good place. If you're doing crypto, you should probably be doing crypto in a Roth IRA if you're going long because all the gains are federal income tax-free. No shit. Yeah. I didn't know that either. That's gnarly. You know, you want your most aggressive assets 
in a Roth, if you qualify for a Roth, you know, yeah. a lot of people get priced out of the Roth category, but yes, you know, which sucks, but yes. you know, if you're, if you're gauging on crypto being around for 10 plus years, probably best to buy that asset in a, a Roth IRA where you can afford some gyrations and fluctuations. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know you got to get out of here in a little bit. So I'm going to ask these last couple ones. What's, um, is this a bubble right now we're in? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I think you have because if you watch if you watch the news if you watch TV people will tell you you're in a bubble the world's going to end you know the TV's about ratings right uh, yeah I don't watch any of that yeah. bullshit do you tune into CNBC every day I don't watch I watch I literally can't watch any of these clowns anymore because I don't believe a fucking word either of them say because I watch one thing and they tell me this and I watch one thing and they tell me the other thing but obviously when you watch who's the dude he does the show I don't want to bag on him Kramer yeah oh my god dude that's the, it's like everything is like a buzzer and a sound and a light. And I'm like, what are you, what world are you living in? But that's what the world would lead you to believe. But you don't feel that. Yeah, that's where some people get their advice. That's where they make their decisions. So. That's crazy, dude. You know, um, so, you know, I guess the, the, the current view is, you know, you've got a lot of uh, growth, inflation policy considerations. I personally feel uh, the global growth will continue. Historically, September is the most volatile, choppy month anyway. People are coming back from vacations. Kids are going back to school. Uh, you know, if, if history repeats itself, we might have the uh, first negative month we've had since January. Uh, I think the market uh, was in the red again today uh, since we've been on this call. But, you know, we've seen a pullback of 2 to 3%. Uh, this has been going on throughout the year. It's just a lot of economic data uh, that's... Uh, out there today that's you know painting a different picture for us consumers to try to navigate uh, surprisingly retail sales were up uh, yesterday they reported which was a good sign that you know consumer confidence is still there uh, have you heard of the vix index volatility index it's hovering around 20 which is still pretty historically low that's a measure of volatility as we view it as consumers but you know, I think this back and forth is reflective of a market that's been up 20%. A lot of the gains have been priced in. Um, there's a lot of cross currents for investors at the moment, which is creating this, you know, environment uh, day by day of a flip between cyclicals, defensive, uh, real no pattern of, of being elicited or not. It's just the market that we're in, the cycle we're in. And I think fourth quarter, uh, we do expect us to end the year. Uh, at an S&P of around 5,000. Today, we're sitting at about 4,500. Okay. You know, I say we. I mean, we're talking to many, many shops throughout the day and week, uh, Brandon, uh, our portfolio trader. And the conviction is still there for an opening recovery. Uh, clearly, we've got uh, rising rates probably going to start to happen early next year. You know, we've been in, in such an incredible, historic, low inflate, uh, interest rate environment. So you're talking like for homes, everything, cars, everything. auto, yeah. Everything. And, you know, now we've got the resurging, uh, resurgence in the, the, the Delta variant and the pandemic, which doesn't appear to be having a real adverse effect. You talked about the, the hospitality, entertainment, travel world. I mean, every flight I've been on the last year has been full. Yeah, the... Um the business stuff is the lagging, the, uh, but the consumer stuff, it's, I've never seen anything so crazy. Like, you can't go out to dinner here. Even in August, you couldn't just walk in anywhere, which I've never seen that in my whole life. I tried to get a reservation yesterday for one of our favorite restaurants. They said, you need to... Where are you trying to go? 
we've got a, a bachelor party for a, one of our stakeholders. We we're trying to get into Toka. Oh yeah, oh, dude. <laughs> Fuck no, dude. Six weeks minimum. It's crazy. Know? So that I mean, whole circle though, like Nobu, Toka Madera, Ocean Forty, like. Well, City Hall's always been my go-to. Yeah, yeah. but it's, even that's busy. Yeah, every I mean, night you got to call way in advance, and that's just because of the massive amounts of people you know that have moved here, but. You know, the global pandemic, Jeremy, changed everything. It's changed our, our economic cycle in unprecedented ways. And uh, we've seen record high amounts of stimulus, pushing debt ratios at unprecedented levels. We've got uh, higher taxes, very likely. Uh, so I think, you know, the policymakers uh, in Washington are going to have to decide, you know, what this economy looks like. We've got a $3.4 trillion infrastructure package that's on the table. A million of which is going to, you know, rebuild roads, bridges. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. Uh, your advice to people um, as, like, you go into 2022, 2023, or any, you know, what you would tell somebody who is, I don't know, skittish or feels weird or, like, isn't sure, like, what to do. Obviously, like, get a coach, obviously. Don't do shit on your own, but... I mean, the, the rock bottom answer for me is have a plan, get a strategy, get a game plan, work the plan, stay proactive around the plan. I mean, I mean, there's a, a ton of advisors that can manage money. Some do it well, some don't do it so well. But it all starts with the plan. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? What do you want to accomplish? If you can build the footprint, build the blueprint for your life, you know, I know what your slogan is helping people make success mandatory in your life. If you want to make success mandatory in your financial life, you've got to have a plan. Which probably you includes know. investing in some things that go up in value. And just be willing to stomach, you know, the short-term uh, volatility. And anybody that's created wealth in this country has not done it easily. There's no straight line. Uh, there's ebbs and flows. If you look at where the pandemic and the crater that caused in 34 days, if you look at the, the lineage on what's happened since then, you talked about the market doubling. Uh, if you believe in the markets, you believe the markets are efficient, you dollar cost average your way through good and bad cycles. Obviously, when we have dips, if you're dollar cost averaging and systematically investing, you're buying those dips. I dig it. And just out of sight, out of mind. You know? It's a long game. Yeah. Uh, anything else? No, I'm just uh, grateful for the opportunity to get uh, time with you, Jeremy, today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a blast. Uh, I'm sure we could talk for another couple hours on this topic. Um, you're so incredibly passionate about helping people. And it just says a lot about you, you know, having someone that, that talks the financial world to people. As you said, there's very unsophisticated people that don't know which what their next move should be or what they should be doing. But um, thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, this is uh, this is good stuff. We'll bring you back on for sure. This is uh, this is real deal. Um, where can these guys find you at, real quick? Yeah, we have uh, our website, as you mentioned, BradleyWealth.com. Uh, you can email me directly at Michael at BradleyWealth.com. Uh, you can send an email to Your Future at Bradley Wealth. Uh, you know, we're on all the social media outlets, uh, IG uh, at Bradley Wealth. Uh, my personal one is MB Wealth. Uh, but you'll find us uh, all over social media. And hey, if you want to stop in and have a conversation uh, in our Scottsdale office, uh, 
you know, we're about uh, four minutes from Jeremy's office. Uh, it all starts with the discovery conversation, by the way. You don't know if someone's a good candidate until you sit and listen and talk and get acquainted and find out where they're at in life. Uh, not one of our plans looks identical. You know, they're all unique. They're different. They they're, have different complexities, but that's where it all starts. So, I dig it, dude. I will link um, all this stuff in the show notes so you guys can harass him. And if you got a question, uh, feel free to shoot it over. We'll make it happen. Um, and I'll probably pop back on here tomorrow or Sunday for you guys. So if you need anything, just holler at me. Otherwise, until next time, eat well, train hard, be nice to people, and please, you guys, keep doing shit you love with people you enjoy because your life is too short not to. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.